Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, hopefully everybody has a copy of uh, notes in front of you that uh, say of the fall of man and the punishment thereof. Um, I want to encourage you again to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to reread what we looked at last Lord's Day morning. And, and the reason here, we're talking about the, the fall of man and want to uh, rivet our thinking in the the historicity of this particular event where it is a particular event that happened in history and this just re-impresses uh, that reality upon our, our mind. So Genesis chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse, in verse 1 down through verse 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And let us pray. Father, we come before the, this Lord's Day morning. We thank you so much for the privilege we have to come and worship a God that is glorious, a God that is pure, and a God that is unchanging. And thank you that you have revealed to us in this holy book... Uh, your character and your nature and your ways. 
And I thank you for each one that is here this morning. Thank you that we can start the day together through by fellowshipping with one another and interacting with your holy word. I would pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit these moments just to uh, convey some thoughts from your word that would be pleasing to thee and would be helpful to our own thinking process in the living of the Christian life for your glory. So we, we pray that you would just bless our time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're, we're still in this chapter, probably will be for a little while, um, chapter 6, of the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. And uh, last week was uh, primarily uh, introductory to the chapter, and our, our thinking was really centered um, uh, around why is this such an important need to understand the fall of man. I gave you three reasons. One, as we indicated, it, it helps us to understand history. That is, it helps us to understand why, why history is as it is, which is primarily, not exclusively, obviously, but primarily a history of sin and evil. And, and kind of a, very closely related to that, we didn't really touch on this, but it, it helps us to understand why the world is the way it is today. It will be that way until the Lord returns. So it helps us to understand history. It helps us to understand the current situation. And then one of the things that also, it helps us to understand ourselves as Christians. And, and you might turn here again to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, this is that particular section where Paul reveals, I, I believe, the ongoing um, struggle that he has as a Christian. And um, we noted, especially in verse 21, Romans chapter 7 uh, you get to verse 20, uh, Paul says, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I, I am no longer the one doing it, but, but sin which dwells in me. Then verse 21, he says, I, I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so we indicated in the, in the living of the Christian life, Paul, he's just writing autobiographically here. It would be like somebody giving a testimony. He says, I've discovered in the living of the Christian life that when I would do good, that, that evil is present within me. And it will particularly manifest itself at those point in times when I would desire to do evil. And uh, that is true of all Christians as well. And it helps us to understand the continual struggles that we have in the Christian life. And I wanted to just, before we move on here, elaborate just a little bit on this for a couple of moments. And um, a part of it, part of the elaboration is the, like the third, the fourth page of your notes. Um, these are some words from John Owen. You might turn there. I think it's the fourth page of your notes. This is, again, a bit of a, an elaboration from last Lord's Day on this issue of the ongoing struggle with sin. Well, what does it mean? And, and I thought this was just a couple thoughts that I, I hope would be encouraging to you. Uh, the, the first one is from the nature and power of indwelling sin. And it kind of answers the question, well, okay, this is the way it is, so what? What, what should I do? And Owen puts it like this. Uh, hence we may see that wisdom is required in the guiding and management of our hearts and ways before God. Where the subjects of a ruler are in feuds and oppositions one against another, unless great wisdom be used in the government of the whole, all things will quickly be ruinous in that state. Uh, there, are those, there are these contrary principles in the hearts of believers, and if they labor not to be spiritually wise, how shall they be able to steer their course aright? Many men live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves." 
They know their outward estates, how rich they are, and the condition of their bodies as to health and sickness they're careful to examine. But as to their inward man and their principles as to God and eternity, they know little or nothing of themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought, are acquainted with the evils of their own hearts as they ought, on which yet the whole course of their obedience and consequently of their eternal condition doth depend. This, therefore, is our wisdom And it is a needful wisdom, if we have any design to please God or to avoid that which is a provocation provocation to the eyes of his glory. So just a a helpful thought from Owen there that kind of helps us to understand why it's important to know ourselves. And just a couple of related thoughts, as I I, I was just reflecting on last week, I, I didn't want that to be a discouragement to you in the sense of, okay, this is the way that it is. But it is an encouragement, I believe, to do things like... The Bible says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Well, this is a motivation to do that. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about mortification of sin, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This is a, motiv- a motivation to do that. And, and as we understand what our true character is, and as we uh, apply those kinds of disciplines, then there will be joy, and there will be peace, and there will be growth. So my point would be, it is to our peril not to understand who we are and what we are before God, because it's a motivation to do the kind of things that will promote growth and grace in the knowledge of the person of Christ. Okay, so then third, we indicated the fall of man, it helps us to understand the gospel. And that's really what we spent most of our time on. And we uh, focused on the effects of the fall and the condition that is often referred to as, as total depravity. And so there it helps us to understand how far man fell when he fell, which is further than most people think. Um, but also it helps us to appreciate then the power of the gospel and the, necess- the necessary power that is needed to make us new creations or new creatures in Christ. Okay, so now we're, we're coming up to uh, Roman numeral 2 here in your notes, um, which has to do with paragraph 1. That is the circumstances of the fall. The circumstances of the fall. Um, and, and before I, I read that in your notes, I just have one, I don't want to get too far off track, but I just have a, a quote here from Thomas Brooks in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It has to do with reading. Uh, since we've got a library right here. He says, remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet to the soul. It's not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. So that doesn't have much to do with what we're going to consider in the next few moments, but I just thought that was helpful in terms of kind of a good thought with respect to, to reading. However, um, the, the, first of all, we're dealing with this uh, the, the paragraph, um, and kind of an overall theme of paragraph one is the circumstances um, of the fall, and it can be divided into two different sections. First of all, initial uh, perfection, and then initial transgression. Initial perfection, initial transgression. And the initial perfection part is this. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. And then this, the next section here would be initial transgression. Satan using the the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which 
which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own, to, to his own glory. So there's Roman numeral number uh, number two, and now Roman numeral number three, is observations about the first sin. Observations about the first sin. And I, I'm, I'm pulling here very heavily from um, Louis Burkhoff's work on his, his systematic theology. So I think I have about six observations here that relate to the, the first sin that will kind of enhance our thinking, I hope, about this as, um, as well. The, the first one, when we think about the first sin, is God cannot be regarded as the author of sin. God cannot be regarded as the one who is responsible for sin. And the best way to make the point here is you'll notice there's just several texts of Scripture that, that help to undergird this particular point. Um, Job 34.10 Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. So it draws attention to, to his practice. Then Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 especially highlights his character in this respect. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So his character precludes him from being the author or responsible for sin. Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That would be the operative words. Righteous and upright is he. Then Psalm 92.15, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, there is no unrighteousness in him. That's what we would emphasize from this text. There is no unrighteousness in him. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Here's why. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And Deuteronomy 25.16, for everyone who does these things... Everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to your God. So here, here the point about God's character is made on the basis of his response to sin. And in Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4, For thou art not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with thee. No evil dwells with thee. Again, a reference to his character. Psalm 11 and verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Again, you see something of the intensity of his response here that brings out the holiness of his character. Zechariah eight seventeen. Let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. All these are what I hate, declares the Lord. So the next, that's observation number one. The next two or three observations um, are in your notes. But it's just kind of the main heading of it. So the development of it is, it's in my notes, but not your notes. So unfortunately, you're just going to have to take notes. Um, So anyway, number two, um, the origin of sin in the angelic world. Uh, I thought this was kind of helpful in this connection. The origin of, of sin in the angelic world. Sin, it seems to have um, its beginning in the angelic world prior to the fall in the garden. Uh, in Genesis one thirty one, uh, it says, He saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, He saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So the, the angelic world, um, we presume, did not have evil angels at this particular point in time. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, where we find there Satan using the serpent for tempting Eve, and so the conclusion would be that, that some kind of rebellion in the angelic world took place between man's creation and the satanic temptation that we read about in, in chapter 3. 
And Burkhoff, he puts it like this. The exact time of the fall is not designated, but John 8.44. John 8.44 speaks of the devil being a murderer from the beginning. Um, the, the prevailing opinion is that, and he talks about the Greek word translated from the beginning, that it means from the beginning of the history of man, from the beginning of the history of man, John 8.44. He indicates very little is known about the sin that caused the fall of angels uh, from Paul's warning to Timothy that no novice should be appointed as a bishop. Uh, he's talking about less being puffed up. Um, he fall into the condemnation of the de- of the devil. That's First Timothy three six. We may, in all probability, conclude that it was the pr- the sin of pride of aspiring to be like God in power and authority. And we'll look at a text in a morning that, in a moment that I think underscores that. Uh, Jude six ta- talks about um, fallen angels, and, and Burkhoff's comment is they, they kept not. Um, they kept not their own principality, but left their proper habitation. They were not satisfied with their lot, with the government and power entrusted to them. And you might turn here. There's a helpful section in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 through 15. Which is, the, the language here, you have to read this and meditate on it for yourself. But it strongly suggests more, I, I think, than just a, a human response, but an angelic rebellion. Isaiah chapter 14. And then beginning in verse 12, um, Isaiah 14, verse 12. Have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So the the language here seems to be sort of lofty enough to suggest it has reference to this angelic rebellion. Okay, then number three, um, the origin of sin in the human race, which we just read about. Burkhoff says it began with a transgression of Adam in paradise and therefore with a perfectly voluntarily act on the part of man. And the effect of this is twofold. The effect of Adam's sin is twofold. Number one, permanent pollution, which affected not only Adam but all his descendants, Um, As a result of the fall, the father of the race could only pass on a depraved human nature to his offspring. So that's, this is in part why we, as, why we're like we are. We're all descended from Adam and we have the same character, the same fallen nature that Adam does. Secondly, um, Adam um, also sinned as the representative head of all of his descendants, the representative head of all his descendants. And therefore, the guilt of his sin is placed to their account so that they are all liable to the punishment of death. So the the guilt of Adam's sin is placed to our account, and and we are liable to punishment on that account. Um, Some people might not like that. It doesn't seem fair, right? We're subject to punishment because of what Adam did. We weren't even there. However, you want to be careful with that line of thought because we are accepted by God on the basis of the righteousness of another with which we had nothing at all to do so there's kind of a correspondence between the two so you want to be careful with that that line of thought so okay number four the nature of the first sin and and two divisions here the nature of the first sin it's formal character and then it's essential character it's formal character and then it's essential character in terms of its formal character not in your notes consisted in his eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
Uh, it was a test of obedience. And, and one is written, I, I think helpfully so, you have to kind of think about this. Um, eating of it per se was not sinful because it was a transgression of moral law. That is, eating the fruit was not a transgression of moral law in the sense that it's not inherently evil, like lying or committing adultery, other sins that, that are, are found in, in the moral law. It's, it's not like that. But it is disobedience to the command of God. So that, that's its formal character. Then its essential and material character, the essence of that sin, lay in the fact that Adam placed himself in opposition to God, that, that he refused to subject his will to the will of, of God, to have him de- determine his course in life. Okay, then number five, the occasion of the first sin. The occasion of the first sin. Um, and here we're just talking about method and strategy. We just read about this, but we're talking about the method and the strategy of the enemy. Burkhoff puts it like this. It's the temptation of the serpent. He, he sowed in man's mind the seeds of distrust and, inbel- uh, and unbelief. And that, that continually is part of, I think, the wrestling ma- match of Christianity to really trust God, to really believe him at his word. Uh, because he, um, the, the enemy sowed in man's mind the seeds of distrust and disbelief in God's character in what he said. Sowed seeds of doubt by calling the good intention of God into question. So there's some thoughts about the occasion of the first sin. And then number six, um, the historicity of the first sin. The historicity. Um, now, if one believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, this is not a problem here. And so really we're not talking about most how most people view the Bible um, but how many unsaved people view the Bible, there's probably no one in this room that doubts the historicity of this activity. But we're just emphasizing that because um, the scriptures bear witness um, to this, and, and that's what you have in your notes here, the historicity of the first sin. And this, this shows also how important it is that, that, that we impress upon our mind. This is an actual event in history. And these are some of the texts that would bear on that. <clears throat> Job 31.33 have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? And then Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices, which I think would include Adam. Hosea 6.7, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Uh, Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, Romans 5.18 and 19, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Uh, for as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So just a, a few texts there that bear on the, the historicity of this particular, of, of, of the fall in the garden. And then the last text that I have listed here um, is, is 2 Corinthians 11.3, where Paul writes, But I am afraid... Lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I wanted to spend a couple more minutes on this this last text. Um, I, it's very significant because the Paul the 
Paul's indicating, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and he not only sees the early chapters of Genesis as actual history, he saw this as actual history, but he's concerned in writing to the Corinthians, he's concerned that history would repeat itself in the lives of those to whom he is writing. <laughs> So not only, A, is this true, but I, I'm concerned that you would do the same thing that happened there. And so Charles Hodge says, the New Testament writers thus assume, and thereby sanction, the historical verity of the Old Testament record. The account of the temptation as recorded in Genesis is regarded by the inspired writers of the New Testament not as a myth or an allegory, but as true history. And he indicates here that Paul begins the verse by registering, registering the depth of his concern. He says, I, I fear. Uh, that, that, that's the idea that he's afraid. This is ongoing. There's, there's kind, of, kind of a sense of distress in Paul's heart here. And <clears throat> he draws attention to the, the method which the enemy used in the garden, which was namely deception. And Hodge puts it like this. They had not yet turned aside, that is, those to whom he is writing. They had not yet turned aside, but there was great danger that they might yield to the seductions to which they were exposed. There was one standing example and warning, both of the inconstancy of the human heart, this is a reference to Adam and Eve, the inconstancy of the human heart and of the fearful consequences of forsaking God. Eve was created a holy. She stood in paradise in the perfection of her nature with every conceivable motive to secure her fidelity. Yet, by the subtlety of Satan, she fell. What reason then have we to fear who are exposed to the old word for strategies of the same great seducer, the plots, the strategies of the enemies? Uh, earlier in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul had written, that we're not ignorant of his schemes, we're not ignorant of his devices. So no small part of the Christian life is realizing that we, we have this enemy that is still prowling about as a roaring lion, and he's still the great deceiver, and that, that is still a method that he employs. And so we have here the method is deception. As the serpent deceived Eve, your minds would be led astray. Uh, deception is a, is a method, successful method, because um, it fits in with the nature of sin, Hodge puts it like this, all seduction is by means of deception. Sin is, in its nature, deceit. Um, the imagination is filled with false images, and the foolish heart was darkened. Eve was thus deceived by the subtlety of Satan. She, she was made to disbelieve what was true and to believe what was false. I have a quote here from Owen, short quote, so no panic here. This is a short quote from Owen. On Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is from uh, the mortification of sin. He puts it like this. Thus the apostle sorely charges on the Hebrews, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Take heed, saith he, use all means, consider your temptations, watch diligently. There, there's a treachery, a, a deceit in sin that tends to the hardening of your hearts from the fear of God. A, a deceit in sin that tends to the hardening of the heart. That's how Owen puts it. So this, this text helps us to know how to protect ourselves in, in two ways. And we're almost done here. Number one, it, it 
underscores the priority of the mind and the living of the Christian life. Notice Paul says he's concerned that, that your mind is led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And I would just say in passing what you already know here, it, it's so important to keep the mind right in the living of the Christian life, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, Philippians 4.8 talks about the importance of the kinds of things that we think. So it underscores the priority of the mind and the living of the Christian life and engaging our minds on what is true and what is, as opposed to what is false and what is holy as opposed to what is unholy. Secondly, it's to realize there's a close relationship between the mind, the heart, and the affections. So it's the priority of the mind, but there's a very close relationship between the mind, the heart, and the affections. So Paul has great concern about the affections. Um, and the language he uses here in this context, it's, he uses the language of, of marriage to make the point. Um, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Hodge says, though they were betrothed to Christ, he feared that their affections might be seduced from him and fixed on some other object. So there's a close relationship between the mind, the heart, and the affections. He, he writes the word translated mind here. It means first thought, then that which thanks, the understanding, and then the affections or the dispositions. Man's belief in a very large sphere is determined by his feelings. He indicates, um, so he, he indicates in, in closing, singleness of mind towards Christ, that is undivided affection and devotion to Christ, which is due from a bride to her spouse, the importance of that. So um, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the time together. I, I pray it would be profitable for our own thinking process as we consider our own comings and goings, as we consider our own mind and what we are uh, exposing it to and what we are reading and what we are seeing. I, I pray it would be helpful to us to um, be those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that increasingly devote ourselves to those things that would be um, enriching to the soul and enlightening to our minds. And I, I thank you for the time together. I, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for morning worship, that our time together would be precious. I would ask that our, our fellowship would be sweet and mutually encouraging to one another. So as we would gather together for worship this day, we pray for the deep, clear working of your Holy Spirit in our souls and might it be edifying to our hearts and, and bring glory to thyself. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.